Ready to roll? I'm ready to go. How's Vermont right now, my friend? Is it as warm as New York? Um, we're settling into the part of the year where it's just cold and gray and cold every day. I have, first of all, I really appreciate you calling in, man. I know this is late. I appreciate you coming on, man. Oh, my pleasure. I have a lot of authors on, and I'm always fascinated at the topics they cover. So obviously, we're going to talk about 9-11 because you're an amazing book. But I just saw on your website, you also wrote a book about JFK, which sounds fascinating. Tell me about that book and what guts it takes to write a book that uh, on a president that so many books have been written about. Uh, sure. So I wrote um, – it, it's actually very directly related to how this book grew um, uh, up, my, my 9-11 one. So I wrote for the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, uh, a, a piece about the flight of Air Force One from Dallas back to Washington and sort of all of the drama that took place on that flight. Um, and, you know, it, it's a moment that we sort of all know from our history books. You know, Lyndon Johnson boards the plane in Dallas and ends up uh, becoming president aboard the plane and then has two hours and 42 minutes aboard Air Force One on its flight back to Washington before he first faces the American public as president of the United States. The plane, of course, has President Kennedy's body aboard it, Jackie Kennedy um, in her blood-spattered dress, Kennedy's old staff, and, of course, Johnson's new staff and sort of all of the drama that takes place across that plane ride over the course of those two hours and 42 minutes. It was a moment that just really fascinated me. Uh, the, it's called Angel is Airborne, which, of course, is the code name for Air Force One. Um, and, and so the, the code word that went out as Air Force One took off from Dallas, Texas, back to Washington. And, uh, um, you know, I, I'm a presidential historian, so I write a lot about the, the presidency and the trappings of the presidency. And it was actually very directly that piece um, that led me to be interested in the other most famous flight of Air Force One, which was the President uh, Bush's flight aboard the plane uh, on 9-11. And that uh, turned into the article that I wrote in 2016 that uh, for the 15th anniversary of 9-11, um, uh, where I went and interviewed 28 of the people who were aboard Air Force One with the president that day uh, and told the story of President Bush's day aboard Air Force One. Um, and um, it's really funny that you sort of... Uh, start off by asking me about the JFK uh, writing because that, that really does directly lead into what we're talking about tonight because it was the reaction then to that magazine article, um, which was titled uh, The Only Plane in the Sky, a reference to Air Force One's final leg of the day, <laughs> heading back from Washington or back to Washington from off at Air Force Base when Air Force One was the last plane in the sky over North America. And it was the reaction to that piece that encouraged me to turn that article into the full book um, that, you, that you read and invited me on to talk about tonight. And that's um, the book also called The Only Plane in the Sky expands that article into uh, the full day of 9-11, morning to night, coast to coast, the stories of 480 Americans as they lived that day in their own words. I told you uh, what, yeah, I told you what I do for work. So the truth is I'm very desensitized to a lot of 9-11 books and stories. So when I did see that your book, The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11, I was a little apprehensive. I don't like reading a lot of books about it, Gary, because I, you know, I, I used to work over there. I see it every day. But I read, mm -hmm. I read the reviews on Goodreads, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot, and I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your butt. Maybe book of the year. I was blown away because very few books can give you that roller coaster of emotions from anger to heartbreak. You hate to admit this to fear, and you checked every single box in that book, my man. It is unbelievable. 
Well, thank you. I I really appreciate that, and um, you know, knowing sort of what you do and what bring what you bring to the story that that means a great deal to me. Um, and uh, you know, I think to me, um, you know, going back to the reader reaction of the of that the original magazine article, the only plane in the sky. Um, there were two pieces that really uh, two reader reactions that really stood out to me. One was from a mother, a veteran. She had two children, ages seven and nine. And she wrote me to say that she had printed out that piece and set it aside so that someday when her children were old enough to read it and for her to talk about it, she could explain to them why mommy had left them to go off to war. And... There was another veteran who wrote me, younger guy. He'd been in middle school on 9-11. And he had done three tours, two in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And what he said uh, in his piece was that he had served overseas, but he had never understood the trauma that the nation felt on 9-11 until he had seen the day through President Bush's eyes in my article. And sort of those two reactions were exactly the what inspired me to try to write this larger book and to try to tell the full story of 9-11. As I sort of realized that we have this new generation coming of age who are going to spend their entire lives living in the world shaped by 9-11 – but have no necessary understanding of the day or emotional tie to the day itself. And when we try to explain 9-11 to people now, when we try to tell the story of 9-11, I think we tell a much neater and cleaner version of the history of that day than the roller coaster that we actually lived, those of us who were alive then, and the, the roller coaster that you sort of talked about emotion-wise experiencing as you go through the book. Um, because, you know, when we talk about 9-11 now, we say, you know, it began with the first plane hitting this, the North Tower at 8.46 in the morning. It ended 102 minutes later with the collapse of the second tower. It... Uh, you know, involved the four planes, the Pentagon, Shanksville, the Twin Towers, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, as you remember, that's not the day that any of us actually experienced who lived through 9-11. You know, we didn't know when it began. We didn't know when it was over. We didn't know the scope of what had actually transpired. And we didn't know what came next, and it's that fear, that chaos, that confusion that permeates the, our memory of the day um, for those of us who were old enough to live it. But that's not the way that we sort of tell the story anymore because we try to make it seem like, uh, you know, a, a, a narrative history. And so my goal with the book was to really try to go back and put people in that day, in the way that those who lived that day experienced it. So to capture that confusion, to capture the fear of the unknown, to capture um, just the general chaos of the day that um, gets lost in the way that we try to sort of simply tell that story now. You mentioned 480 people, and then you continued on. Explain how your book is written because it's a very unique book and it did take 400 – so if you heard 480 people in this book, what? Explain how it is because it's a very unique book how you wrote it. Yeah, so it is an oral history. And so the book is just people speaking in their own words about that day. And what I've done is woven together their stories and their words in chronological order through the day sort of place by place so that you can watch 9-11 unfold 
through their own words and through their own memories of what everyone was doing. And, you know, it's everyone from office workers in the Twin Towers, military personnel at the Pentagon, uh, first responders in New York and Arlington and Shanksville, um, to the people who were on Capitol Hill, to the people who were in the bunker underneath the North Lawn of the White House, um, and, and really trying to capture the full mosaic of the day. How long did it take you to put the book together from the first interview to the last? Because it seems you had to piece 480 interviews together of people. How long did it take you to put this together? Yeah, so it was about two and a half years start to finish. Um, and the book is a mix of my own interviews as well as uh, archival original history um, oral histories from places like the 9-11 Museum, the 9-11 Tribute Center, the Flight 93 National Memorial, uh, the Capitol Hill Historian, the Pentagon. Um, there were a lot of places that sort of have the good insight, insight and instinct to go out and try to capture some of these stories um, right after 9-11. Um, and so you know, the, the interviews, uh, some of them were conducted as early as October 2001 and as late as, um, you know, I, I finished probably the last interviews that I did for the book in April or May last year. The first, I have, we have to play spoiler alert, the first interview, because when I saw how the book was written, I go, all right, how's he going to start it and finish it? Explain the first interview or the first passage, because it was so fitting, the first one in the book. So the book opens with the story of Frank Culberson, who was the one American off planet Earth on 9-11. <laughs> he was aboard the NASA astronaut aboard the International Space Station that day. And he tells his memory of waking up that morning and calling down to Mission Control in Houston and, you know, asking, how's your Tuesday going? And being told, well, actually, we're not having a very good day down here on Earth. And then watching from the space station, he's able to actually look down as it orbits overhead and passes over New York City. He's able to look down and see the smoke cloud coming off of the uh, lower Manhattan. And he's actually able to catch the collapse of one of the towers as he passes over. On another pass later in the day, he actually sees uh, the Pentagon um, and the, the um, scar through the Pentagon of the plane that hit there. And then over the course of the day, what he sees are the flight contrails disappearing over the continental United States until from space, he sees the last plane up in the air, Air Force One flying from off at uh, Air Force Base in Nebraska back to Washington. Unbelievable. You told a lot of stories from everyone else. What's your 9-11 story? Where were you? Because everyone has where they were. Where were yeah, you? Yeah, I, I have a, a very boring 9-11 story, okay. uh, <laughs> which is I, I was just in college. Um, and, you know, I was having breakfast in the dining hall when um, a, a friend came in and told me uh, about the the planes crashing and you know despite how boring and sort of straightforward that story is um you know i could walk back into that dining hall 18 years later and i could walk right to the seat that i was sitting in that morning you know i could tell you everyone who i was seated with i could tell you where my friend was standing when she said the news and and i think to me, that's just indicative of the way that for sort of everyone who experienced that day, every moment of that day is burned into your mind. And that comes back to, to me, this big theme, which is, you know, none of us knew what was coming next. Um, you know, none of us understood uh, at... 10 29 a.m that that was the end of the day and there was no sense that this was going to be limited you know quote unquote just to new york and washington and shanksville 
Um, you know, it, the the Sears Tower in Chicago was evacuated. The skyscrapers in Boston were evacuated. Skyscrapers in Los Angeles were evacuated. Disney closed. It's the first and only time in in uh, that Disney in Florida has ever been closed due to a hostile action. Um, and in Toronto, they shut the subways down. I mean, there was just this sense that these attacks could come at any time from anywhere. Can you imagine a tragedy of this magnitude or on a small level and the chaos now with social media? Can you, because I remember when that happened, um, you know, everyone has their own story, running home, putting on TV, and every news channel had 10,000 dead or this is going on. They just blew up this. Like you said, Disney World, Yankee Stadium. Can you imagine the chaos with social media right now? Yes. And, and I actually thought a lot about that because I think, that, you know, one of the sort of tr weird things to try to talk about for when you're talking about 9-11 now and trying to teach and explain 9-11 to a future generation is that as bad as 9-11 was, um, you're exactly right that, you know, for much of that day, much of America thought it was far worse. Um, you know, the U.S. government well into the middle of the day thought there might be as many as one or two dozen more hijacked planes in the sky. Um, you know, New York City's estimates that first day were potentially 10,000 or 20,000 people dead. Um, you know, it, it, over the course of the day, you know, some people were estimating 50,000 dead. Um and and so, you know, in some ways, the the trauma of the day nationally was really just not understanding what was real and what wasn't. I mean, you remember the rumors of the car bomb at the State Department. I mean, one of the most persistent rumors that day, um, r rumor that there was a plane crash outside Cleveland. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I quote someone in the book talking about hearing that a plane was it was down in Cleveland and sort of standing there and racking his brain, wondering, like, what's in Cleveland that <laughs> someone would want to hit? And, you know, it, it is that chaos that permeates so much of that day. The, the one I always see the most, Garrett, is uh, a lot of the cops down there at, uh, at Ground Zero said that they were they were down there and they were hearing that terrorists were surrounded them and just shooting them as they were trying to rescue. That was the big rumor up here that terrorists were lined up in different buildings, shooting down at the workers. That was the big rumor going on here. Absolutely. And, and I, and I actually talk about that rumor in the book because, um, you know, there, there is some truth to that in that what was actually taking place was ammunition that had been stored in the secret service field office that had been destroyed in the crash was cooking off in the rubble of the world trade center. And, you know, the, um, I, I sort of talked to people, uh, or, or quote people talking about, you know, the fear that they were under, uh, land assault from terrorists down there at ground zero. I, uh, I love and I'm fascinated when authors, you know, do these big time research books and, did they go here? What kind of personal research did you do for this book? I know you went through all the memorials, read that stuff. What other research did you do to put this book together? Um, well, I, I mean, one was, uh, you know, the archival research um, that sort of pieced together the oral histories that I ended up using in the book. Um, I was working with a researcher from the 9-11 Museum. And we located about 5,000 oral histories around the country um, related to 9-11 and, and sort of uh, sorted through that to come up with about 2,000 that formed the core of what we looked at for the book, which, of course, then I whittled down to about the 480 that are in this, in this, in this finished book. Um, and, you know, those stories take place all over the country. Um, and as you've already mentioned, I mean, part of what makes this day so remarkable is everyone who was alive that day has their story. And so trying to piece together um, the full national mosaic of what it was like to experience 9-11, I mean, I tell in one of the chapters 
the the story of what it was like to be a child on 9-11, which to me was one of the most haunting uh, chapters uh, and research parts of the book, um, because, you know, for people of a, a certain generation, um, you know, 9-11 is their first memory. Mm-hmm. And um, for people who are a little bit older than that, um, but were children on 9-11, um, you know, they don't really understand what was taking place, but they, to see sort of 9-11 refracted through their eyes by watching the experiences of the adults around them, um, I just found really uh, haunting, Um, you you know, that they could sort of tell that there had been this massive disturbance in the force, even if they didn't actually understand the specifics of what was taking place. When people mention September 11th, Obviously, they think of D.C., of course, New York City. Very rarely is Flight 93 mentioned, and you gave it a lot of press, which was good because I knew nothing about it, really. I thought you did. Oh, they took down the plane. You didn't realize everything going on there. You didn't know what happened there. Why is it seemingly forgotten? Is it because it wasn't on TV and it's not a big high-profile thing? I, I think that some of that's it. Um, it you know, it was the, the visuals um, were so much less than they were at the other two sites. Um, and, and I think that sort of part of it is also, it, you know, we didn't really understand until, you know, the days and weeks and even months after 9-11, what had really taken place uh, on Flight 93. Um, you know, there there was a real uh, fear on that first day that the U.S. government had actually shot that plane down. Mm-hmm. Um for the people in Shanksville, and this this was some of the most amazing uh, quotes that I, that I came across. You know, the people in Shanksville couldn't understand why Flight 93 had crashed there either. Um, I talked uh, a quote in the book. Uh, Denise Miller, who was the uh, one of the police sergeants in the Indian Lake Police Department, one of the uh, small departments around Shanksville and was one of the first officers on the scene. And she talked about how scared she was arriving at the field because, you know, during the 10 a.m. hour on 9-11, she really only knew four facts. You know, she knew that two planes had hit the World Trade Center, one plane had hit the Pentagon, and the fourth plane had crashed here in this field in Shanksville. And so she was terrified, thinking that the terrorists were trying to blow up something in the field that she didn't know about. You know, she assumed that there was some secret government facility buried under the field that she didn't know about. And that, you know, she also knew, of course, that there were two planes that had come in and hit the world trade center. So she's standing there afraid that actually another plane is going to come in and try to hit the field because they haven't successfully blown up whatever they were trying to blow up. And when you read that quote today, and we now understand, you know, what took place at uh, aboard flight 93. I mean, her quote sounds ridiculous, but if you only know what Denise Miller knew during the 10 a.m. hour on 9-11. Actually, her story makes a ton of sense. Incredible sense because, like you said, there's not – remember, there wasn't good cell phone service either. There's no – you can't put on, oh, let me check Twitter right. real quick to check the news. So you don't know what's going on. And like she said, what the hell's going on here? You got the Pentagon, the World Trade Center. Why the hell are they coming here? It's It, it makes sense. Yes, and um, you know you're absolutely right um, to to raise the question of sort of social media, both the confusion that it would sow, and then also what um, uh, what it would now entail in terms of information spreading, um, because you know nine eleven in many ways feels like part of our modern world. Um, you know, I, I think actually you can make the argument that 9-11 is the beginning of the modern world. You know, it is the dividing mm-hmm. line 
sort of as clearly as we have one between the 20th century and the 21st century. But when you go back and you look at the technology that was happening that day, well, uh, and, you know, P.S., when you go back and you look at the suits that men were wearing that day, <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it seems a lot more like the Stone Age than it does the modern world. Um, you know, Blackberries were cutting edge technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most people didn't actually have cell phones at the time. And so what you saw um, on 9-11 was just these incredible limits in the speed with which people could communicate, the ease with which people could communicate. And, and it really is, um, you know, sort of terrifying to think about what that could look like today. You know, if 9-11 if transpired with the technology that we have today, um, you know, we would have video from... Uh, and tweets and, and Facebook lives and Instagram from people in the impact zone in the twin towers, um, you know, an experience that none of us really know what that was like. Um, you know, there would have been people broadcasting from windows on the world on the North tower. Um, you know, we would probably have video mm -hmm. from the hijacked planes. Yeah, um, and, and you know, we would have, video of flight 90 of being aboard flight 93 um in in ways that uh, you know are, are really sort of uh, tragic to think about i was talking to this book with a couple of people at work who read it and they said the same thing as much as you want the instant communication you know there would have been some horrific things people would have live streamed them jumping out of the out of the buildings you know that they, they would yep. have done everything one because they were scared and two you putting everything out there to your loved ones in the tragic pictures that you see now in videos, it would have been quadrupled or times a thousand if there was uh, what we have now. Yes, absolutely. I, I want to actually. So, what was yeah. your 9 11 story? Uh, well, I can't get into the whole entire thing of it because what I work, but I was actually at college also, and I was kind of uh, like in the pre stages of doing what I do for work. I'm not allowed to say what I do for work, it's kind of the agreement I made with the department. Um, mm -hmm. So, then after that, I went. To college, we got dismissed early. I came home and I had to report to work. And then on the third day, we went down to Ground Zero. Uh -huh. So yeah, it was. Uh, I'll tell you more about it. It's actually pretty cool, but I can't really talk about it. Um, <laughs> one generic or hacky question, but what story? And I hate to, to put someone on the spot, but what story touched you the most while reading it? Because two really stuck out to me. So which one to you that you like? Oh, after reading it. Um. So, um. You know, uh, the the dumbest thing that I would say about writing this book is that I was really unprepared for how emotional writing a book about 9-11 would turn out to be. Um, and, you know, I, I will tell you that I, you know, cried probably every day that I was working on the main draft of the book. Um, and going through these stories and compiling the stories that would end up in the book. Um, because the things that, you know, just as people tell their stories, just these little things jump out at you and, and grab you. Um, and the theme that it wasn't even so much one story uh, as a theme that was the thing that stood out to me and, and, and uh, haunted me through the whole writing of the book was the role that luck played on 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way that we, um, you know, make a thousand of these very small decisions every single day um, without thinking, you know, when to get a cup of coffee, when to run an errand, which train to catch, which bus to take, um, what plane to catch, um, and we never think about the alternate universes that we are unlocking by making one choice, but not another. And on 9-11, you know, so much of how that day unfolded was driven by just these incredibly meaningless choices that people made. And, you know, Michael LaMonaco, the chef at Windows on the World, the, at the mm -hmm. restaurant atop the North Tower, you know, he would have been at his kitchen every day by 830. But that morning of all mornings, he stopped 
to get a new pair of glasses at LensCrafters on his way into work that day. Um, you know, there are so many people who switched their flights at the last minute, either onto one of the hijacked planes or off of one of the hijacked planes. Um, there's a, um, the, there was a army conference room at the Pentagon where, uh, the, after the impact of the Pentagon, the, everyone in the room survived. It hit sort of right below them and they evacuated the room and every person who turned left out of the conference room died and everyone who turned right lived. And, you know, it, those just themes and moments and sort of the, the randomness of fate or luck or whatever you want to call it um, was just so hard to deal with in writing the book. The two that stuck out with me, one just fascinating that he was even in it was the ticket agent, uh, Alex Vaughn, the one who actually yes. like the dude was a ticket agent who put and he had survivor's guilt because but every other ticket agent in the world would have let Muhammad Atta and all those guys through. So that one, yes, that one got to me. And then obviously the firefighter's widow with the terminal cancer. I'm reading it. I had to put the book down. I'm like, come on. I can't be getting emotional. The book played out like fiction because some of the stories you only see the two, you know, you see the grandiose thing. You don't see the small little stories. Right. Th those and, two for me were the toughest. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it was, it was a day that fundamentally was an intensely human story. Uh, and I think that gets lost because of the scale and the scope of the day, you know, that, you know, in Manhattan, you know, there are millions of people who have a 9-11 story. Um, you know, in Washington, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have a 9-11 story across the country. Everyone has their own 9-11 story. Um, but sort of breaking it down to just that human experience moment by moment coast to coast, morning to night, uh, I, I think really does emphasize how amazing that day was to unfold. While writing this book, how many times did you do what I did? I went down the rabbit hole. I was on YouTube and I watched clips and clips and pulled up newspaper articles that I haven't read or talked about in 15 years. How many times did you do that writing this book? Oh, I, I mean, every <laughs> single day. Um, and, and, you know, and also, you know, that's it, to try to even just figure out what the story is to tell here. Um, it, you know, the first draft of this book was more than twice as long as the finished draft. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that a, another historian or, or, or writer could sit down with the same pile of material that I use and write an entirely different book, you know, never repeating a single quote, but talking about the same people because, you know, that uh, so many, there was so much amazing stuff and, and heroism and tragedy and, um, you know, happenstance that uh, I didn't get the chance to tell um, in the day uh, as it unfolded. I mean, there, there's sort of this incredible moment at the end of the day that I, I didn't even have room to include in the end about, you know, President Bush, after he makes it back to the White House, he goes uh, to bed in his own bedroom. Um, you know, the, the Secret Service want him to sleep in the bunker. Um, and he says no, and uh, instead goes to bed upstairs. And uh, around midnight, there is an inbound plane uh, that they think is targeting the white house. And he's awoken and, you know, basically carried from the residence down into the bunker. Um, and they get him and his wife, uh, Laura Bush, the first lady down into this bunker and then sort of realize at the end of the day, Oh, Nope. That was a totally false alarm. <laughs> and then he goes back to bed. Garrett, maybe it's you and I, uh, maybe it's recently recent biased, or maybe it's because the unknown that we didn't know how many different places were going to be hit. But if you ask our parents and grandparents, their, their things were when we landed on the moon, when Kennedy was assassinated, uh, Pearl Harbor, that's where they knew where they were. Like you said, you knew the lunchroom they were standing in. 
it seems that 9-11 just eclipsed all that. Am I, is it recency biased or oh, am I right with that? No, I, I think that there is um, – I, I, I do think that 9-11 uh, eclipses that in part because we all watched it together. Um, you know, part of what makes that day so amazing in terms of the national memory is, you know, people remember Pearl Harbor. They remember the Kennedy assassination. But what they remember is the news of it. They don't remember necessarily watching it live. Um, whereas, you know, the, the first plane hit at 846 and it was live on television by 849. And so, you know, so much of America watched that second plane hit the South Tower, um, you know, live together. Um, and, you know, we were just glued to the television that day in a way that, you know, we sort of have never been in our history before. Um, and, uh, you know, it just continued to unfold all day long on our television sets. You had a detective in there, Jose Rodriguez, and he was one of the detectives who helped carry Father Mike Judge from the NYPD. And you also had Deputy Inspector Luongo, who's now a chief from the NYPD, both featured in this book. I reached out to them. Neither knew they were in this book, Garrett. You need to promote this more. I know it's a, <laughs> I know it's a hugely popular book, but both these guys are like, we, what, we're in the book? And they went and got them. You have to let more people know about this book. So I tried to track down as many people who were in the book as I could, okay. uh, but I certainly didn't get the chance to reach everyone. <laughs> I, I want to tell you one cool moment about that um, because it's cool reading the book. And, you know, when you see someone's name in it, no matter what, like you're an author, you see a name all over the place. Yeah. It's still cool to see it. So Robert O'Neill, the one who uh, Navy SEAL who killed Bin Laden, he comes yes. on my show all the time. We co-host with everybody. So when I had uh, Robert O'Neill on for the first time, uh, I did it in front of a live audience of all NYPD members. And um, Jose Rodriguez was there, and I loosely knew him. And he walked over, and he, you know, everyone tells that 9-11 story. And Rob O'Neill was telling, like, how the Mike Judge, reading about Mike Judge really got to him. And then Jose Rodriguez was like, well, I was one of the ones who was carried him. It was like such a fitting story how it kind of closed the book, and it helped, like— yeah. Jose Rodriguez, like, dude, that was my worst moment in my life. And you killing Bin Laden kind of put a, a bow on it and closed the chapter. So it was weird seeing all those people in your book because you really hit everything with your book. Yeah, and and Mike Judge is, um, you know, there there are not that many people whose sort of individual stories have risen to sort of the mythic proportions of that day. Um and I tried to tell um, I, I try to tell through the book the story of, um, you know, the handful of, of sort of mythic figures um, who have unfolded from that day. I mean, you, you have Wells Crother, the volunteer firefighter who um, ends up saving so many lives in the Twin Towers um, of his office colleagues, um, Rick Rescorla. Um, you know, the director of security for Morgan Stanley, who ensures that almost all of Morgan Stanley's employees uh, safely evacuate. Um, John O'Neill, the, um, uh, you know, the former FBI agent who, you know, more than anyone had helped lead the hunt for bin Laden in the years before 9-11, um, who just two weeks earlier had left the FBI and started as the director of security at the World Trade Center, who ends up dying in the collapse. Um, and then, of course, Mike Judge, the, the chaplain that you mentioned from FDNY, um, and his incredible story that day. He was the only priest who entered the World Trade Center um, on 9-11 and ends up dying in the collapse. And, and I sort of tell the story of how he ends up being named uh, the first official casualty of 9-11 um casualty 0000001 and um you know one of the guys in the book says that he thinks that father judge wouldn't have had it any other way <laughs> he wanted to make sure that he got to heaven before all the rest of the first responders that day to welcome them to heaven doing this painstaking research one thing that surprised you the most while writing this book uh, one thing that's done what 
surprised, most. surprised you the most. Oh, surprised me the most. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of it is really just realizing how global the experience of 9-11 was. Um, you know, I've talked to, uh, you know, people in Thailand, people in Poland, people in India, people in Egypt, people all across Europe and Asia and South America about, you know, what their memories of 9-11 were like. And, and it's just sort of incredible to me. You know, I've never given a second's thought um, before I embarked on this project to what, you know, the Polish experience of 9-11 was like and the way that they viewed this attack on us as an attack on them as well. Um, you know, what 9-11 was like to experience in the Pacific, where you were actually basically waking up on September 12th <laughs> and all of this had transpired in your sleep. Um, you know, the, the, uh, you know the, the universality of 9-11 just stuns me. The one thing that stuck out to me the most was that the United States was very, they were ready to shoot down a plane. And it's hard to even, you know, it's its different when you hear, oh, we're going to shoot down the plane. And then reading in your book that, yeah, they were going to shoot down a plane. That's, that stuck out to me the most. Like, we were in a time of war. Yes. And I think that, you know, you, you, it's a great point to raise because part of what ends up coming out in that, uh, as you sort of watch 9-11 unfold over the course of the day, is these incredibly dramatic stories that if they had happened on any other day would be among the most dramatic things that had ever happened in modern American history, and yet on 9-11 were not even necessarily among the 10 most dramatic things that happened that day. Um, so, you know, the story of uh, you know, Heather Penny and Mark Sassville, the two fighter pilots scrambled out of Andrews Air Force Base who think that they are on their way to shoot down Flight 93. <laughs> um, but because of the way of how quickly that they were raised into the air, they didn't even have weapons aboard their plane. And that they, um, you know, their fighters were being launched into the air effectively on a kamikaze mission. Um, and they thought that if they succeeded they would never come home again um you know the the maritime evacuation of lower manhattan this incredible sort of makeshift armada that comes together over the course of the morning of 9-11 and eventually evacuates 500,000 people from lower manhattan an effort larger than the evacuation of dunkirk um, in World War II, um, and yet is a story that like most people don't really know at all. Um, uh, uh, and even in Manhattan, you know, even in New York City, it's a story that sort of gets overshadowed um, in, in people's memories of 9/11. And then you know the incredible work done by the air traffic controllers and the FAA and the airlines around the country to ground all of the planes that were in the air on 9-11. Um, you know, Ben Sliney, the national operations manager for the FAA that morning, he was on his first day on the job <laughs> as the head of the U.S. airspace. And in the first 90 minutes of his day, he gives two orders that no American has ever given before or since. Um, you know, around 9:20, he gives the order, to institute a nationwide ground stop that any plane that's not in the air uh, is going to be uh, put uh, is going to be kept on the ground. Um, and then around 945 after the attack on the Pentagon, he issues in order to land everything, land everything now. And every plane that's in the air, 4,500 planes, is going to be forced down at the closest airport, regardless of its destination, and regardless of whether the airport is in any way prepared for the planes that are about to land there. And, you know, sort of we just know the tail end of this story, 
which is the 38 planes that end up being grounded in Gander, Newfoundland, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that sort of form the core of the musical Come From Away. Um, but, you know, that was tr- that was story was sort of playing out at airports around the country. They put 750 airplanes on the ground across the country in the first 10 minutes after Ben Sliney's order. That's a hell of a first day. It is. And, and <laughs> you know, he he's thinking that I mean, he's standing there thinking that it might also be his last day. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> you know, he 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 doesn't know. Uh, he, he literally doesn't even know whether he actually has the authority to force planes out of the air. Yeah, we're going to do a few quick hit questions. You ready? Yes. First time you ever saw someone reading your book, you did what? You're out in public. You see someone reading it for the first time. What do you do? Uh, I actually I, I went up and introduced myself and asked them if they wanted me to sign it. Did, did they want to sign it? They did. <laughs> you and I are hanging out in a bar in New York City. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Oh, that's a great question. Um, probably Carl Rove. Oh, that's actually a really good answer. Okay, that's actually a good answer. Uh, what book are you currently reading right now? Um, so I actually um, just finished reading um, a biography of Frank Lloyd Wright mm-hmm. um, written by Paul Hendrickson, um, which is uh, just sort of an incredible book about a very weird man who did an incredible amount to shape um, you know, the modern America. Um, and the other one I actually just finished reading, which I highly recommend, is Hampton Sides's uh, relatively new history of the Marines at the Chosin Reservoir in the Korean War. It's called On Desperate Ground. And what's ne- what's the next book for you then? Um, it, you know, the my my general challenge in life is that most of my reading goes towards work, um, and so the the next book on my list is actually uh, Peter Baker's book on the Clinton impeachment called The Breach. Meaning that you'll be writing a book on. Uh, no, I'm, I'm reading that just uh, to help cover the impeachment trial over this next month. You know, you, I have to ask you a, po- a political question. And I mean this sincerely not to you know, make fun of you. How do you stay in politics? It seems like it's such a stressful, nerve-wracking thing. How, do you enjoy writing about it and stuff? Because you know, I like reading about it, but it's very easy after I'm like, oh, I'm tired of the left, I'm tired of the right, just to click off the computer and put the newspaper down. It's your life. Does it ever get so stressful? Like, why am I doing this? Yeah. So, um, I mean, certainly these days. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I'm I'm lucky because I generally cover it at a little bit of a remove mm-hmm. um, because what I cover is government, not politics. Um, and so most of what I'm writing about day to day, most of what I'm reporting on, um, you know, is the way that government is working. Um, you know, uh, the FBI, the intelligence community, the Pentagon. Um, things like that. And so, you know, I, I really don't know how um, my friends who cover the White House or cover Capitol Hill manage to stick with it in the modern environment where it just unfolds relentlessly 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Coolest piece of memorabilia that you own, whether it be from your book or from anything, coolest piece of memorabilia? So my last book before this one was um, uh, called Raven Rock. It was the uh, history of the U.S. government's doomsday plans, um, sort of all of the weird stuff that would have happened during and after a nuclear attack uh, through the Cold War. And so a lot of it ends up being a history of the U.S. Uh, presidency during the Cold War and the history of nuclear weapons. Um, and so I have a, a piece of Trinitite, which is the... Uh, bluish liquefied sand that uh, was created by the first atomic bomb exploding in the New Mexico desert, the Trinity blast. Um, and the, the sand that the, the, the atomic bomb melted um, is now called Trinitite. And so I've got a little piece about the size of a quarter. Um, is it that, displayed uh, in your house? 
it it is displayed in a case in uh, my house because it is mildly radioactive. <laughs> That's a re- you know you had two good answers, Carl Rove, and then that. Okay, <laughs> do you check any Amazon or Goodreads reviews? Uh, I I do, and, um, and and I have never uh, I've never been as uh, religious about reading reviews as I have been with this one, but this book um, is just very personal in the way that, uh, you know, it it is all of these people's stories of 9-11 and then in people's reviews, they tell their own stories. So I have been, uh, I've been sort of religiously tracking these, um, uh, these reviews and the stories that people continue to share with me. My one critique. Can I give my one critique on the book? Oh, please. I, I was upset. I'm a big radio guy. I love radio. There was no interviews mm-hmm. or quotes from the radio hosts during that time. Uh, Howard Stern, Don Imus, Opie and Anthony. So being a New Yorker, that was and Mike Francesa. That was our one um, sense of normalcy, putting the radio on and hearing those guys do it. That was the one thing. I'm like, oh, I wish you would have got one of the radio quotes in there. Oh, that's a that's a great idea. I didn't. Uh, I, I have um, Bob Edwards from NPR sure. talking about. Um, hosting that day, but you're absolutely right. It would be great to have some of those folks in. And the last two, a current uh, 2020 election will be President Donald J. Trump versus who? Uh, you know, I, boy, I have been <laughs> stunningly wrong about every prediction I've made in this race so far because I, you know, a year ago I would have told you that Kamala Harris was going to be set up to be the nominee. So you're not going to give an answer? <laughs> Um, I, I guess I, I, I would sort of guess Biden, mm-hmm. but I still think that there is uh, – Biden seems too obvious a choice right now. I still think that there's going to be some weird wrinkle that unfolds. You f- uh, Give the plug where anyone can get the book and follow you because you just wrote an incredible article. Did Twitter uh, help stop the war with Iran? Uh, you're an incredible writer, and once I knew you were coming on, I started to look more and more and more about you, man. You do some crazy, crazy great articles. So just give the plug where everyone can get your books and read everything you do. Thanks. The book is The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11, available on Amazon or wherever you get your books, like your local favorite independent bookstore. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at VermontGMG uh, or find me at GarrettGraff.com. Garrett, this was an absolute blast. I'm so happy we did this. I love your book, and I'm really glad we finally linked up, brother. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great night, my friend. Bye-bye. Thank you.